1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Economic and Business History Channel, a podcast of the New Books Network. I am your host, Dr. Paula de la Cruz Fernandez. Today, we're interviewing Professor Stephanie Decker about her new book, Postcolonial Transition and Global Business History, British Multinational Companies in Ghana and Nigeria, published in November of 2022 by Routledge. Hello, Stephanie, and welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Paula. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for being here with us today. And um, I have the pleasure of having one more person joining us who has also read the book by Professor Decker and will pose some of the questions that are more related to management and organizational theory. We have with us today Professor Michael Rawlinson from the University of Exeter's Business School. Welcome.
1: Hi, Paula. Hi, Stephanie.
0: Before we talk about the book, I would like to ask you, Stephanie, to tell us more about you, your background in academia, and your research interests.
2: Sure. Um, I think my interest in academia um, came obviously as a student. I really enjoyed courses on on history, on the history of um, the economy, of businesses. I found that quite fascinating. I was in Germany at the time. I was bo- born in Germany, and a lot of the history was obviously around um, the Nazi period. And that was true for business history as well. That was the 90s when that kind of business history was just developing. But I think that was, to some extent, maybe so overwhelming that I became more interested in, in the history of... Um, First Europe, but then really the the parts that we weren't really, you know, taught so much. So I, I did um, uh, a module on uh, late medieval, early modern Russia, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, and it was just such an experience to learn the history of, you know, somebody else. Like it's not your own history and you actually get a real insight and you need to sort of adapt your knowledge to different cultural frameworks. And um, I was also studying cultural anthropology at the time, um, because, you know, you always have a combined honours in Germany. And I became even more interested as I was learning about sort of the cultures of the world. Anthropology can be a little bit sort of backwards looking in the sense that they do love traditional cultures. And I was thinking, yeah, but really, I mean, the world isn't full of traditional cultures and the world has been integrated through organisations worldwide. And what happens when these organisations cross different cultures? And that was really sort of a question that I was super interested in. And I felt in Germany, there was limited opportunities in a a history department to study that. Um, So I was fortunate enough to get a a scholarship to come to the UK. And um, I was again in a history department, but this was also at the time when some of the the business um, historians were moving towards the business school so there was a lot of opportunities to actually think a little bit more broadly about organizations, about cross-cultural communications. And that sort of got me started first in an MSC to look at um, international business in Britain and its relationship to the empire, which was you know, sort of the intersection of cultures. Uh, I would say at the time I was probably a little bit naive about the power dynamics behind this um, that led to a PhD and then um, to long running research interests um, in the area. And I began to focus on West Africa, which was a really interesting place because British firms have been there for a really long time. And when the empire decided um, to leave after a lot of public pressure and changing international environment, the businesses decided to stay. And as a result, they had to really think very differently around how they were going to engage with these societies that previously they could by and large ignore. I mean the wishes of africans in uh, what was then the gold coast later ghana and nigeria weren't relevant to their business decisions they weren't even really stakeholders and that changed during decolonization and it continued to change after independence and that was really sort of the the setting i was trying to explore in the book and that the title the post-colonial transitions refers to so this idea that businesses engage with other cultures all the time but that's neither value-neutral nor is, is power not there in mediating those relationships. And the book's really trying to unpack what that looks like if you're a member of an organisation, be that a European member or, or an African member of these organisations. And that, I think it was a very crucial time, decolonization, early independence um, for, these, for these countries and for some of the people I interviewed, and it was really a
0: fascinating project. Wonderful. Well, thank you. You already gave us... A little bit of an introduction to the book, which is great. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read uh, Professor Stewart Clerk's note in your in the back of your book, and I say I open quote: Decker is a rare scholar combining the empirical fastidiousness of a business historian with the conceptual and theoretical skills of an organization theorist, producing a book that should be that should contribute to a more global and historical appreciation of the role of multinationals." End of quote. And so I'm very glad that you took us through this very academic, interesting academic journey, uh, which shows, again, these connections uh, between history, the study of business strategy, organizational studies. I think that uh, one of the factors that make make your book uh, so interesting also is that it it speaks to all these what variety of fields, right? Um, international business, business history, management, African history. Can you tell us who this book speaks to, and in what ways all the fields I just mentioned will benefit from from reading your book?
2: Yeah, I think Stuart was was very kind then in his in his quote, and um, I, I'm I'm glad that the book reflects some of my my different interests um in this area. I think I have in the past published several articles around the research in this book that go more into um, perhaps specific questions. Uh, some of them are more historical, some of them are maybe more organisation studies oriented and they are probably much more targeted. I think what the book's really trying to do is, is open this up as a history, um, be a little bit more narrative and in that sense, hopefully be accessible to a wider variety of people, including people who might just be interested in the history of, of ghana and nigeria which you know um obviously people in ghana nigeria and the wider west african area are but i think it's also interesting internationally for us to to understand more about you know the, the way things look like when you're in different places around the globe and and i hope the the narrative gets that a little bit clearer a little bit more accessible to a wider range of people um because obviously articles are very focused articles address very specific audiences so, so this one is really an attempt to, to make it a little bit more open. And um, as a result, I've got sort of two parts to the book after the sort of introductory um, section that really looks at sort of almost the history of ideas about how do people think about businesses in intercultural contexts around development, because obviously development is a big issue in, um, on the African continent in general. But it's also a big issue for companies and how they position themselves towards development. And that's really sort of the opening and and how this discourse has shifted over the years. And then um, really the the first part is trying to understand the sort of political activities. How do these firms try to then shift their political allegiances from what was effectively liaising with a colonial office in London towards um, liaising with the new sort of emerging capitals for Nigeria, also regional politicians um, local chambers of commerce, emerging industrialists, um, entrepreneurs in, in West Africa, and that's um, it's an interesting interesting subject because then uh, I decided to end in the um, 1970s where this relationship, you could say, turns sour because the expropriation programs, but you know they're, they're a lot more complex than I think meets the eye. I think as Westerners we often look at oh this is economic nationalism and it's against businesses. I mean, if you live in the UK, you're well aware that economic nationalism comes up with really strange political narratives. I mean, um, we've seen that in recent years and and in lots of other countries. And I think the same was true historically. You know, it's a much more complex story, with many more different interests. And whether you're in West Africa in the middle of the 20th century or at the start of the 21st century in uh, Western Europe or North America, that's Uh, that's pretty much true. The specific context might be different, but what's actually happening is is a very complex thing that doesn't just affect firms and foreign investors. Um, The second part then was really an attempt to dig into what it's like within the organization because um, or organizations, because I look at five different companies, um, and this is really what it was like for people working for these organizations in um, later Ghana and Nigeria, and um, how they were beginning to promote Africans to more responsible positions, which was a really slow, long-running process. So I tried to track that over 30 years and understand the different trends. And I had some interviews with people in West Africa to understand what their perception was. Um, normally people worked there in the 1970s. And that was that was really fascinating. I think when I originally did some of the archival research that was in the noughties, there, there were things that I could see in the files, like only for sort of certain periods of time but today we would think about them as as ethnicity pay gaps and um, i think at the time even when i was doing the research first I, i didn't even have that term or that concept to draw to but i could see that you know people who were much older much more experienced were promoted later and were kept at lower salaries there were clearly ceilings in place so um it was an interesting story about people being included but not included equally that was a big problem and it was a really long process that spanned um, independence and went into the first and second decade of these independent states so there's a really long history it's very intricate it changes a lot over time and uh, that that subject in particular I think also speaks again to the present day to our our understanding of you know um, what is EDI how do we include people things like empowerment programs And you can see that was really important in Africa, and not just West Africa, in other parts of Africa in this time period.
0: Give us a little bit more um, detail about this periodization. Like how, tell us, which you actually talk about it in Chapter 1. What was before uh, decolonization? What was before expropriation? And what happened after?
2: Yeah. The book starts roughly in the post-war periods, so you could say from 1945, 1946. Mm-hmm. That's largely because obviously the war period was a little bit exceptional. It, it did have an impact on West Africa as well, um, even though these were not uh, arenas of World War II, but um, people from West Africa served. Um, so this had a big impact um, because West African colonies at the time were raw material producers, commodity producers. They were really important in the British Empire and to the war effort. So the war in some ways um, heightened their importance. And that's really true for most colonial possessions in that period. And then obviously everything's supposed to return back to normal in 45, 46. And that's a not so straightforward because clearly they have had um, a lot of economic growth. And that was continuing through post-war reconstruction. There was a lot of demand. Um, But also, I think it's the changing international politics, you know, the the US were very clearly um, emerging as a world power, as was um, the USSR. So imperial possessions, colonial possessions were no longer that acceptable. So with that comes this whole political process of decolonization. And that affects business. But there were also consumer protests in the Gold Coast, and um, maybe less well known in, in some instances of of protests in Nigeria, but I think the one for the Gold Coast in 1948 were probably the most um, well-known. And they were targeting directly British firms because they felt they were um, charging extortionate prices. Now, um, firms were defending themselves, but it was the first time that they became aware of just how unpopular they actually were. They didn't know this. They didn't need to care before. And um, that really, for some firms, changed the way they they were thinking about things. So the UAC had a bit of a a wake up moment, I would say. And um, that was quite curious in a way how they could have stayed so ignorant of, you know, the public relations image they had and how terrible that was. I think that there's a quote in the book about, you know, how they dealt with it in the past. They felt they shouldn't have really responded to any criticism. And then they begin to realize that not engaging in this conversation is maybe a downside and they need to change their policy on that. And that for me is really the starting point. So it might say 1945, but it's really this point in time when firms begin to realize that, um, you know, they have to actually legitimate their presence in these countries, you know, that they have to show that they're socially acceptable and that people in these countries have a say about their presence and how they operate. And it's, you know, this is a major changing point, um, a turning point. So it really highlights how little they had to care about local interests before that point in time, right? In, in a colonial empire, um, these opinions weren't really important. So that's sort of the starting point. And then traditionally, um, a lot of historians have looked at um, the whole process of decolonization until independence as if independence was the end. And it's very clear um, by the 1950s businesses don't think like that anymore, particularly late 1950s. They start planning for the time after independence. That's really what, what becomes the main focus from about the 1950s onwards, because they realize they'll be dealing with independent states. So I always thought stopping at independence is so artificial because none of the organizations thought about it that way. And clearly the local stakeholders were, looking at independence as a starting point, not as an end point. So it's sort of just ending there seemed very artificial. So I decided to take the story into the 1970s, mid to late 1970s. And that's actually economically a much bigger breaking point, I'd say, for the West African countries, particularly Ghana, Nigeria. You see um, expropriation um, attempts uh, of some of the foreign multinationals, but also of sort of ethnic minority businesses at the time. It's very uh, economically nationalist. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with how, I'd say, uh, independent statehood had turned out, there were military coups, political instability. And um, it's an important time period. Ghana and Nigeria diverge because Nigeria obviously uh, finds oil and petroleum becomes immensely rich. So in the 1970s, they're a hugely important company, uh, country and the companies... Are massively dependent on their revenues from Nigeria. So Nigeria experiences this enormous boom in bargaining power. And you see that in the 70s. For Ghana, the story was different because they didn't have oil and gas. So they actually go into um, a really difficult economic period that got even worse with structural adjustment in the 80s. But um, you see very similar programs. They also try to control the economy because the economy is doing so badly. So two countries, different economic context, very similar political and economic policy solutions and that i thought that was the real sort of time period that mattered the sort of attempt to integrate foreign businesses and then the sense of dissatisfaction with how it turned out and that's why i took this really long time period to map how that relationship evolved over time um which you know i mean you can always set time periods in lots of different ways. But to me, that seems a much more significant breaking point than,
0: say, independence. Great, thank you. So we've talked about time periods and places. Can you talk a little bit more about this concept of organizational legitimacy, which you talk in Chapter 2?
2: Yeah, that's um, really about this idea that any organization that operates in in a country needs to be socially acceptable and uh, socially acceptable to stakeholders. But who is a stakeholder? And I think, well, the business literature... Very often doesn't ask that question and I think there're parts of the world where that question does need to be asked because um, if you have, say, uh, more repressive states or um, social divisions on the basis of certain categories, it means the opinion of some people matters more than others. And in any stakeholder analysis, obviously they're more and less important stakeholders. but in some countries in some cultures, What you may see is that some groups have a disproportionate influence, whereas other groups do not. And obviously in a colonial environment, what you find is that firms think about justifying their presence to the people in power. And if there are rapid transitions in the institutional environment, and that's sort of the concept of a post-colonial transition, where you have a pretty rapid change in terms of the institutional frameworks, the people who... Ultimately, become political leaders, economic leaders. There's this complete transfer of power. Firms have to adapt very rapidly, not just to new people, but also to new ways of approaching key stakeholders, identifying them, and they're often not very well adapted, not so ready to make this. And it's very interesting following through the files how a the firms were different uh, if they were more internationally. Um, diversified they had maybe seen similar processes elsewhere and could transfer knowledge but you also see individuals sometimes you had certain leadership characters were quite quite against this whole thing it was their beliefs and value system they're deeply embedded in the empire Um, they they took a lot longer to accept that and um, in the end everybody had to accept it and it's when that realization comes through you see language and strategies changing and that was that was very interesting to see and I mean I don't mean that in a then they totally bought in and everything was fine. It was in a, in a much more cynical way. And a lot of the strategies that I detail, I think are legitimization strategies in the sense they're there to manage reputation. They don't always represent a, a, a full commitment in terms of values. So they're really managing a process that these organizations did not choose and would not have preferred. So it's really a, a
0: management of political transitions. Right. Um, before I let the mic uh To (laughs) Mike, I'm going to ask uh, my last question on this uh, um, idea between uh, the relationship between business and politics, right? Because that's a very important um, and relevant topic, especially as you said in your introduction after um, Nazi Germany, uh, well, until uh, the end of Nazi Germany. And now that we're seeing more archives and more archives being open to researchers. In this case, could you tell us a little bit more in detail uh, about the sectors? Like, what are the differences between mining and, you know, banking? What are the different companies that you researched, and how how do you see this spectrum? <laughs> Uh, and how they, they deal with, politi- with politics and, and nationalism and expropriation and so forth?
2: Yeah, I mean, there were obviously industry differences, because also a lot of the um, expropriation attempts end up being quite industry focused. Um, so uh, the, the way expropriations were carried out in Ghana and Nigeria it is quite a complex process, and it targets specific schedules of industries. But um, even before that happened, I think it's quite noticeable that there are differences. Um, so the united africa company which was the the leading subsidiary of uh unilever so unilever had in fact two major african subsidiaries in the region so lever brothers and uh, the united africa company um so in the book i focus on the united africa company which was a subsidiary that was huge in relation to the very large um multinational it was a part of and they were mostly a trading company so sort of in the whole structure quite quite deeply um colonial um clearly intertwined with the colonial history but they were also present everywhere and um selling lots of things to lots of people working with lots of smaller traders so they are really one of the the first targets of, of public um ire and they're really singled out and they're as a result uh, the, the company that reacts the fastest in some ways it's also easier for them because you know they do trade and um, West Africans have always been renowned for for their involvement in trade. So th- there is not that much technical skill in the company at the time. That's normally done with joint venture partners. So they um, start promoting more Africans. It's still quite a slow process. Um, they're also, because of their importance to the economy, very good at accessing political contact contacts. So you can really see them dominating that trade sector. But there were other trade companies who also... Um, managed to leverage their relationships so the other company I look at is John Holden Co from Liverpool which is far far smaller and um, takes a very sort of different strategy and is in the late 1960s purchased by the uh, major african multinational lonro so um they are noticeably smaller and they they're noticeably more I would say not necessarily conservative at, at the beginning of the time period, they're often very positive about it all, but it doesn't ever seem to lead to very meaningful change, right? So it's interesting, you get the, the rhetoric, and then you get what they actually do strategically. And um, a lot of the companies at the time could expand massively in terms of their operations. And that allows them to hire more people without necessarily letting any uh, of their old people go. So expansion makes it very easy to, to manage that process at the beginning. And the same is really true for banking. So I look at Barclays Bank, um, as well as the initially called uh, the British Bank of West Africa, later Bank of West Africa, and then later Standard Bank of West Africa. And Barclays at the beginning was known as Barclays, uh, Dominion, Colonial, and Overseas. And then they abbreviate that to DCO. And then by the 70s, they're Barclays Bank International. So you can see how they are uh, cleaning up their names and taking out that sort of colonial element. Um, And they really expand um, their branch network because clearly they were only really banking for expatriates and expatriate companies. And if they actually wanted to continue operating in independent countries, they needed to offer banking to Africans. And that was a massive change to their operations. And um, there there are lots of interesting stories around it, including one where there was the lending to Africans episode where they felt they lent too much to Africans and had... um, a much greater degree of bad debts at the time, but looking through the files, it was interesting that the largest single debt within that, you know, the, the debts to Africans were generally quite small, um, but the largest share of the debts was actually um, the result of expatriate uh, corruption and bribery, most likely because that went to a single company, uh, the London and Cano Company, um, which went defunct. But as far as I could see, this was definitely an expatriate company. And out of the two, two and a half million pounds that were lost in bad debts in that period, uh, one million came from the London Encarno Trading Company. So that was just sort of wrapped up with, oh, it's very problematic lending to Africans. But it wasn't ever really made very clear that there's also a big chunk of um, expatriate collusion and essentially uh, fraudulent payments involved in that. So it, it, it's a very sort of tricky time period they changed their operations so it doesn't run very smoothly, risk management is very good, they don't quite oversee what's going on. So it's it's very complex, I think, for um for the banks to manage that. And then um, I looked at the Ashanti Goldfields Corporation, which is a gold mine that only operated in um, the Ashanti region of Ghana in the town of Obuasi which was really interesting because they have a huge African labor force, but all the management of course is European or, well, more precisely British most of the time. And um, they were extremely slow in changing this. Um, Their director was um, Major Edward Spears. He was quite a sort of imperially connected figure, and uh, he really objected to a lot of these uh, processes. But then he became friends with Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first independent head of state in Ghana, and they were, by all accounts, great friends and. Krumer collected um, mechanical toys, so he would make him gifts of mechanical toys. So so you find this incredible material in there. And um, again, it's it's the rhetoric, it's the personal relationships that didn't always translate into organizational differences. So um, it it was interesting. Sometimes you could sort of see differences between industries, but you also had so many idiosyncratic characters sometimes involved, particularly in the earlier time period that um, it's an interesting process to follow and you see a diversity of strategies in in which you kind of manage your political networks. Great. Mick, do you want to go on?
1: Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Hi, Stephanie. Uh, well, I really enjoyed the book. Thank you, Mick. Yeah, uh, and, and an opportunity to talk to you about it. I think the bit that I was more interested in is is the process, the, the internal process of Africanisation of the workforce and especially promoting the West African personnel to more senior management positions which seems to have been a, a difficult process for these organisations and I think it was your article in Journal of Management Studies on this very process that we, we first got to know each other because uh, it made a good impression on me uh, big impression but um, I wonder if we could, if I could ask you to talk about the terminology because as you say in the introduction it's a bit confusing there are so many um, terms and and it's not always clear not not because you're not clear but it's difficult to follow whether these are the terms that they used at the time or whether these are terms that we can use now historical commentators it's historians historians um and just to add to the confusion i know that as well as africanization and economic nationalism the actors at the time, like one Unilever director, refers to isation in general, "ization" of, of, and it's not clear wh- whose "ization" he's talking about. Uh, so, if one, I wonder if you could talk us through some of the terminology and the nuances of localization, indigenization. Was that a term used at the time? Africanization, as well as Ghana. Is it Ghanaization? Yes,
2: that's very hard Ghanaian- to pronounce.
1: Ghanaianization, yeah. nigerian Nigerianization. Uh, and Nigerianization is sometimes opposed to nationalisation. I want just could you clarify some of these things? And and what were the connotations at the time and what are the connotations now?
2: Yeah.
1: It's an uh, alphabet soup, I- isn't it? This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups.
2: Yeah, I mean I really struggled with this when when I did the research. So um I, I tried to use them consistently, but I wouldn't say that they were always used consistently at the time, though I tried to be in keeping with the majority use that I found. So I cannot claim that I've read everything because obviously these were big debates. So um I think at the beginning maybe there's a lot of talk about Africanization, and sometimes that can mean all sorts of things because very little actual Africanization was happening. Um, I use the term purely to refer to a change in staff because I see it as an umbrella term for processes that are happening. Um, Africanization at the time was something that businesses in West Africa termed the process of promoting more Africans to roles that were more highly skilled, because if they were employed, they were often in like, really low level roles. I would say they were really, you know, maybe at the level of a bank clerk or of um, a messenger. So they were not really decision making positions. But the problem with that was then, for example, to British companies, oh, Africanization, we need to appoint Africans. And that could be a Sierra Leone in Ghana or Nigeria. Now, locally, that's not what people wanted. They wanted to make sure that you know, domestic people had opportunities to gain good jobs, that it was economic nationalism. There's no question. And it was also to um, righting the the wrongs around having a, a country control the economy that was run by foreigners. That was also seen politically as a problem. So the pushback then was really what we want is Ghanaianization or Nigerianization. We don't want any African you know, it, it's about us. It's our country. It's it's a bit like what you see in Latin America with um the oil is ours. You know, th- this idea of. But but this should be ours. We should have a share of it. Um, and then in Nigeria, where regionalization becomes quite in- ingrained, um, they they they're having more debates around this should be northernization or westernization. So it should reflect the people from the respective region, and then obviously the major ethnic groups in those regions had the biggest call on it. That was also driven by the fact that um, in Nigeria, the people who were promoted were mostly Igbo, because Igbo generally had um, engaged very heavily over the decades uh, in the um, Christian mission school system. So they were generally better educated. Um, So so they were in a position to get all these positions. And that wasn't something that other people in Nigeria were particularly happy about. So that led to to a very problematic and sometimes violent history in, in Nigeria. And firms were, at first, not really aware or understanding of these differences. Obviously, by the time you have the civil war, that that, that differs. But um, particularly at the beginning, all of these nuances and these, these domestic issues, they're just really blind to. So, so this change in terminology, you can sort of see, is also a pushback from local interests in terms of what do they actually want and what do they expect from firms which hadn't been part of the conversation before. And I think you say, oh, um, Nigerianization is different from nationalization. Um, that's a quote I picked up from the Hansard, and it was an uh, economic uh, nationalist um, politician challenging uh, uh, somebody else. So uh, Chief Festus uh, Okoti uh, he was a well-known uh, Nigerian politician at the time. He was Minister of Finance. And... Um, He sort of makes a statement, the federal government has a policy of Nigerianization rather than nationalization to say to to bring more Nigerians into the business rather than to try and control the business through ownership. And that's what he's trying to say there. So nationalization is almost always used in the sense of we're taking control of equity that is owned by the state. And then W.O. Briggs actually challenged him on this saying um, he advocates Nigerianization and not nationaliz- nationalization. Does he think by merely Nigerianizing the staff of some of these basic industries, these industries will become Nigerian companies? So he's sort of challenging that, you know, just having these people employed doesn't mean they have any decision making power. On the other hand, later on, I think the switches and they go much more for nationalization or the other term is indigenization, um, which I explain in a minute which the idea is you control the company in the equity, and then you control the company. But the problem was, if you then didn't have enough African staff and you were still relying on expatriate staff, you had a management contract with them, and they still de facto controlled the company. So this quote's interesting, but you know neither is really the, the, the complete answer because neither really amounts to a control of an industry or a company if you don't have the people, the technical knowledge, and the control of the assets, right? That all of this goes together into controlling organizations. So that's really why why it's so complicated. And ultimately, beyond certain industries, uh, Nigeria and Ghana opted for what they called indigenization. And that is to legally force companies to sell equity to domestic interests. So that's a privatization of nationalization, you could say. And that benefits elites in those countries incredibly well, because for the first time they can buy assets at really good prices. Um, this is, this is building stock exchanges in, in the country. So, so that's a very interesting process, but that, that's sort of separate from, from the people that are being promoted. though so these obviously then get opportunities in those industries. So that's nationalization and indigenization. That's normally equity. You also get localization, which by this point in time is not so important anymore, because that's normally about the local incorporation of companies. But you'll also see that term used in terms of local content right we're we're familiar from this in other areas so then it could be staff it could be equity it could be who you have contracts with so so that term is really fuzzy and uh, understandably really difficult oh yeah and the last one you wanted to ask about is isation so this is unilever saying oh we see this everywhere it's indianization africanization Ghanaianization. It's isation. It's when we localize our staff in different countries. And we've seen it everywhere we know how to do this. That's sort of them creating their own expertise in the process. And uh, Andrew Knox, I think, in his biography, names that as isation. So put any nationality in front and then promote the staff. That That's sort of their take on it. But they, they want to think about it as unileverization, yeah. getting these people inoculated into their corporate culture so their nationality becomes less important.
1: Well, that's that was uh, a follow-on was that they they seem to think that they need to Unileverize the Nigerians before they can Nigerianize Unilever. Yeah, uh, that the, the 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 Nigerians have to be of a certain. It, it's sort of intangible um, what they refer to. It's some some intangible quality that Nigerians have to have and all too often seem to lack uh, that they want to inculcate. Do you get a feel for what that means to be unileverized?
2: (laughs) I think at the time I made sense of it as this sort of corporate culture. I mean, probably in the 90s, less so in the 2000s, there's a lot of talk around corporate culture. Obviously, you wrote a really interesting piece on corporate culture at Cadbury's. This idea that corporate culture can sort of almost take people out of their context and bring them into company context and, you know Hofstede's framework of intercultural differences is sort of trying to highlight that they keep the corporate culture element stable. So, um, this idea that a corporate culture could be almost on a par with a national culture, I think that people have become a lot more realistic about the fact that that's really very unlikely. But I, I do think there's this sort of professional and corporate cultures that means people do identify differently. And that was very noticeable for the expatriates because. Obviously, their passage to West Africa was controlled by the company. They were normally in company housing. The company decided if they could bring their wives. In fact, the company would check if they were marrying an appropriate wife. So was this a white wife or was this a black wife? And only later on black wives were more acceptable. So I I talked to some expatriates where um, one of them was marrying somebody from Mauritius. And then his line manager asked the question of, What kind of Mauritian is she? So there was an earlier time period where um, interracial marriage was less acceptable. And there's a later period where firms want to be seen as encouraging it. But um, I don't think that's always a very easy experience for the people in the marriage uh, because of the nature of the social environment they're in. So um, there is all of this sort of subtext happening at the time where I think the, the expatriates are sort of inculcated in a culture, and this was the baseline from which they were thinking about, can we do this for African staff? Because then what we get is the black equivalent of the people we already have, right? And and that was really what they were looking for. And often they they term this character, which I think is a terribly British thing. So obviously I came from Germany, <clears throat> hadn't been in Britain that long, and then I was confronted with these arch-British notions of of character people from military from public schooling it's very male and i mean i was as befuddled as anybody else i mean i didn't know what they meant by character what's a character Uh, you know and and there, there was i mean you would probably call it a habitus from Bourdieu. you had to be a certain kind of person so they were hiring from a specific class although west africa wasn't that popular with expatriates so they didn't ever feel they had quite the class of people they would maybe have in india or something like that but um, th- there was this sort of sense that, you know, you needed to be a certain person. And that was something they tried to instill in African staff. There were some quite amusing files, which uh, didn't fit the book, where, for example, they had African staff and they invited them to all these cocktail parties. So characters seemed to revolve around making small talk at cocktail parties. Visiting managers were permanently at cocktail parties to the point their diary would list no cocktail parties today. That That was like a diary entry when they didn't have one. When they were down on the coast for three, four weeks, and then there would be these comments about, yeah, so the African staff they came, but he didn't bring his wife. You know, he was supposed to bring his wife because the cocktail parties is always with the wife, right? They come as a package. So to Africans, that was clearly not the case. The wife wouldn't be seen as somebody who would accompany, or they weren't sure they were welcome, or there were situations where um, they might bring their girlfriends. So obviously, culturally, Ghana, Nigeria are countries that prior to um, uh, the colonial empire, many, many uh, ethnic groups had, um, you know, marriages where men would, if they were wealthy enough, have several wives. And that, that was culturally not, not everywhere, but not a places, quite normal. So none of these things were, were socially acceptable, obviously. So there was a lot of socializing around it, starting to opening up housing to African managers that was super controversial at the time because they were highly segregated in um towns and cities in um, west africa so so all of these things sort of i think fed into this character thing but they could never quite say you know i think there were all these these quotes about yeah they're very good but they missed the spark you know of real managerial ability they could never quite say what it was even though everybody acknowledged most of the managers in west africa weren't particularly good you know it wasn't seen as like the cutting edge of managerial ability in the uk and arguably the UK at the time was also not exactly seen as the most innovative country. So, you know, it, it was a bit curious what, what they meant by character, to be honest.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. That's, that's really interesting. Some of the policies of these companies in West Africa, looking back, they they appear to be quite progressive. You know, they seem to have um, targets for Africanisation. Um, targets is still a very controversial issue, in the UK, uh, in terms of having a more diverse workforce. Um, I, w- I wonder if they were seen as progressive at the, at the time by um, the companies, um, whether having such a policy in West Africa was ever perceived uh, 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 as controversial in the, in the UK, for example, as it would be today.
2: I think targets were relatively unusual, but certainly the AGC at some point, uh, the Ashanti Goldfields Corporation, did have targets or forecasts, they called them. And they looked very ambitious at the time, but they, they managed to achieve them. However, you could also see that the number of managers at the same time was growing. So I think a lot of this was possible because there was so much growth, particularly 1950s, 1960s, that they ended in the 1970s where you could just expand the workforce. Um, There was another uh, process that I couldn't really clearly see from the files, but um, which had been pointed out by, um, I think, a well-known sociologist, Michael Burawoy, who did a study in the Zambian mines. And he looked at Zambianization, right, because that was happening there as well. And he pointed out that there was job fragmentation where expatriates would be promoted the next level up, Uh, a Zambian would be, would be um, appointed to the level below him, but then parts of the role that was previously in that role, the Zambian was now appointed to would go with the expatriate the next level up. So what you see then is to some extent, you create additional layers of management, and the overall number of managers increases. And that you can see for all the firms that I looked at, and it's difficult to tell apart in how far is this expansion. And how far is this, you just needed more expatriates to train these people you were bringing in who may not have had quite the same access to schooling or who just needed more training to, to be fast-tracked? Um, or in how far was it simply, you just added people on to look good to the outside? I mean, most of these companies didn't report other than the United Africa Company. So I've got some, some detailed statistics in there because I have a sort of full time series. For the other companies, I had to sort of pull together... Uh, you know, on occasion, somebody would look at something for three years or for five years. So so I have sort of snapshots for a time period where you can see the process and where you can also compare between companies. But that can be really tricky to compare because, um, you know, what is a management level, you know, between a bank and a mine and a trading company that goes into more industrial production? that's very different. And for example, for the Bank of West Africa, there was very little of that kind of information available. So um, it was really quite difficult. Same for John Holt. So I sort of had to extrapolate sometimes from one company to the next. And you could see in the files is saying these are more advanced than these. So people would comment on each other who was more advanced because, well, they really needed to get employees. I mean every year they're over-recruited and then the people left because they didn't like working there and people had a choice it was a vibrant economy and it's a little bit like what what you see today that you know companies actually had to think about how do we attract talent so um, it was a really interesting mix I think of of reasons that that leads to what um, I think looks quite progressive but I think we have to remember it comes from a very low level I mean these are individuals that are being promoted for the first time into any form of responsibility, where previously that wasn't really given to, to Africans at all.
1: Well, I, I think um, probably we're, we're running up against time, but uh, just the last observation, it, it, it almost seems as if one of the limits on uh, Africanization was that it seems that the African managers were more likely to be managing other African employees rather than the Europeans. Was that a, a source of resistance in the organisation?
2: Yeah, I'm not aware that there were any cases when an African was line managing a European. And I think that, that is in and of itself a good indicator. So um, I think there's this uh, quote from W.R. Sir Lewis, that's early 1950s, where he says, oh, um, see the expatriate as a somewhat tedious fellow, you know, a nice teacher, but really, you know, somebody we should hand over. So they were very much cast into this role of, of teacher and trainer. And I think that was quite a benevolent role in which they helped expand knowledge and hand it over. And in later periods, that's what happened. But particularly in the earlier periods, what you'd see was Africans would be appointed to very specific positions, welfare officer for African staff, HR for African staff, running the company newspaper, um, you know, anything that might be externally visible and was a lot more window dressing, they'd go very, very late to positions such as financial controls. So um, I talked to somebody in Ghana who at the time still was in charge of one of the organizations that I looked at, and he started his fast track program in the 1970s. And he ended up being the first really sort of director of the subsidiary who was African. And he then line managed the chief financial officer who he wanted to be a European. And ultimately there was pressure that he needed to be removed. But he said it's better for this guy to be an outsider because he was only responsible to me and he was only loyal to me. So he actually wanted an expatriate in that position, which was interesting. But that's probably the only case where I'm aware that there was somebody in charge of an expatriate. And that would have probably been eighties, nineties. So, so much, much later time period. So yeah, I would say specific positions went much earlier And other positions went really late. The other thing is um, African women were appointed really late. I think that's into the 1970s. I think um, Barclays appointed a woman branch manager. That was mid to late 70s, I believe.
1: Okay, well, it's a great book, Stephanie. I I think um, this process of isation around the world is continuing, uh, as we know. And um, probably this book will be the... Start of a a research program of isation uh, in various different contexts. Um, I'm not sure that's the catchiest title for it, but <laughs> it, is, it is it is it is applicable in lots of different situations. And uh, and I think your book sets the scene for much more further research. I'm sure you'll be involved in in a lot of it.
2: Thank you, Mick. That's really kind. I mean, I, I would say most of the HR language of that period is insensitive <laughs> to say yeah. that, but
0: Thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks, Stephanie.
0: Thank you. Um, before we, I have one more question about the book, which is about sources, because you, uh, I like how you bring in um the actors, right, the managers, and you touch upon, you use different sources, you use photographs, you use interviews, Uh, so besides numbers, um, which is what I think people think business historians do, (laughs) just look at (laughs) um, ledgers, you use other sources. Can you talk a little bit about this and how they bring you to this social, more social and cultural part of, of these corporate relationships?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, images, photos were there, and I I probably don't even use as many as I could have done in the book, because obviously, one of the things um, that I wrote an article about, so this never made it into the book, but that was sort of research I was doing at the same time, was the way um, these companies, as they were expanding, were building. So, they took loads and loads of pictures of their branches, but sometimes also of the interior, and that was just fascinating to see, because you got a real sense of what was the space in which people were engaging. So I'd read things in the files around cages. The cashiers had cages and they were hiding behind these cages. So they wanted to get rid of it to make it all a bit more open and customer-friendly. So this is a great picture of that. The um, pictures that I have in a book, uh, I picked precisely to show some of the processes I was interested in. So so in the earlier chapters, you see a picture of... um, Julian Crossley with the Emir of Kano was one of their main contacts. It's a very formal shot. Um, it was early 1950s. And then Barclays was a great collection of, of photographs. They, they, they really kept fantastic files. So they have the numbers, they have the letters. And so they have the, the figures, the, the words, and the images, which was great. And then there's a later picture of Richard Dyson meeting the uh, premier of the Western region in Nigeria, Samuel um, Akintola. And to be honest, I wanted that picture to be the cover, but I couldn't have it. Because I think that picture just tells you everything about where you have these two white guys in smart suits falling over themselves to shake the hand of Akintolo, who you see sort of half from the back, half from the side. And it's this sort of political contact, somebody we can see, we can take a picture with. I think that that, that sort of eagerness of the the image really encapsulates yeah, exactly. That's the one um, that that encapsulates that relationship. I think the other thing from the period that's great, which is on the British Film Institute player, is um, a video done at the time to drive savings uh, with a fantastic tune, um, and that is is just a, a beautiful thing. And I have sources around that, so I've written another article around that. It's not in here. So sometimes, if you're lucky, you will get videos and a sense of how people were actually getting access to film but I mean for the African audiences what they really cared about was the music because it was locally composed by a local musician and it was a massive hit so in how far that really worked for Barclays I don't know Um, I mean I I talked to people of that generation they all remembered the tune I think of the video the only thing they remembered of the woman hitting the husband over the head with a pan So in half of the message, if you should save more money, came across as possibly questionable. But that seems an almost culturally (laughs) general picture. Um, And I think in the later part, I've got sort of pictures. There's this earlier picture for the UAC where they're interviewing a candidate for like an apprenticeship. And you've got these two white guys interviewing a a really young African guy. You only see, again, half from the back. And, um, you know, you could say, yeah, they look very benevolent. But on the other hand, yeah, he's... um, He is basically, uh, you know, interviewed by two very senior people for what is an apprenticeship? And you think, well, that's a high level of involvement, isn't it? I mean, this is 1959. It was clearly seen as a positive thing. But if you then look at the later period, I have um, an advert from Barclays saying our kind of people, enterprising people, this is from sort of the 1970s. And you see these two smartly dressed uh, African executives with phones and paperwork, signing deals, no expatriates in sight. So you get the sense of how, how firms have to change their public representation. And I think that's why it was so important to use images where you had them. And um, it was interesting, the, the, the business historical files are good on this. Corporate files are good on this. Companies like keeping that kind of material. So I think more can be done analyzing images and using that for research. And I think hopefully it also makes the, the whole story a bit more accessible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think uh, this is almost the end of the interview. Can you tell us what are you working on right now? What's your next book?
2: what i'm working on at the moment is probably a little bit more focused um towards articles so not really a book project i would say um but i'm still really interested in looking at the the time period at the setting um but maybe looking at it from a more sort of organizational dimension and that's what i have done in some of the articles that relate to to the subject of the book so i've got some uh, fantastic material around the 70s and 80s from the world bank that um I got from the World Bank archives. And again, it's it's not a business organization, but it's still an organization and it takes a very specific view of the setting they're engaging with. And it's a very controversial issue at the time around structural adjustment programs in, in Ghana. And it's quite fascinating to see how the World Bank constructs the figures that are supposed to explain how the economy is performing, how it constructs the economic problems it is setting themselves up to solve. How, you know, Ghanaians have an input in this process, how it's limited, but how they also manage to manipulate that process. And um, it's a very big organization where I think people in country have a very different view on where the organization should go versus uh, Washington. And they're very interesting dynamics about how these big organizations work, how they sort of parachute into a country, define the problem, and seek the solution for the problem. And, and how much input you actually get from the people for whom the problem's supposed to be solved. And obviously that's that's been a long running discussions around in how far the sort of externally led development is, is truly meaningful and in how far organisations can deliver solutions to global challenges because uh, let's face it, most of our global challenges are older than the concept of global
0: challenges. Wonderful. Well, I'm really grateful to Mick Rawlinson for joining us today. Thank you, Mick.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: And thank you very much to Professor Stephanie Decker for introducing or presenting her book with us today.
2: Thanks, it was a pleasure. It was um, a nice talking a bit to people about a book, which you don't always get an opportunity to do, so
0: thank you. The book that we discuss today is Post-Colonial Transition and Global Business History, British Multinational Companies in Ghana and Nigeria. Again, thank you both for joining me today. This is the Economic and Business History Channel of the New Books Network. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, and I hope you enjoyed the interview and you join me next time.